The sermon text today comes from Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 21. Um, That's on page 843 in the Bibles, in the chairs. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away, hungry at their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from afar away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they um, set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? Good morning. Um, If you spent any time at all on the Gospel Coalition website, or maybe you've read his books, or maybe you happened to go to or listen to the audio from the the National Desiring God Conference last year, you would have heard Tulian Chavijan talk about gospel mathematics. Right? He's, he's basically he's trying to lay out some equations for us to understand the gospel. First, he says that you can have the gospel plus nothing, and that equals everything. Right? So if you have nothing but the gospel, and that's it in your life, then you're blessed. You've received every blessing that you could possibly receive from the Lord. He goes on to another equation, and he says if you have everything, everything that the world has to offer, plus minus the gospel, then in reality you have nothing at all. What's it going to gain you? In the the end, you you have nothing. He goes on and he adds a little bit further. He said, you know, if you try to add to the gospel, if you do gospel plus anything, it actually works like subtraction. You end up with nothing. You don't have the gospel plus something. You lose everything. You're left with either license or legalism. That's all that you have. So in this sense, there is a gospel, uh, there's a, a mathematics to the gospel. But the same thing can be said for unbelief. There is a, a mathematics of unbelief. 
Now, you may get a failing grade at gospel mathematics, or it might come really, really, really hard to you, and it should. If we're honest, it does. But when it comes to the mathematics of unbelief, we're whiz kids. We're we're born straight-A students. We don't have to think about it. We don't have to go to class. We don't have to study. We don't have to try hard. Nothing. We get an A every single time. We get the mathematics of unbelief. Now, there are many integers that you can add to this equation, but the basic formula is this. Forgetfulness, or the inability to see the Lord's grace, plus the influence of the hard-hearted, equals the inability to perceive. I'm going to say that again. Forgetfulness, or the inability to see the Lord's grace, plus the influence of the hard-hearted, equals the inability to perceive. We all deal with the mathematics of unbelief. Class is in session every minute of every day. We all forget or we turn a blind eye to God's grace that is all around us. We are tempted by the seduction of the hard-hearted, the unbelieving, the worldly to compromise. And unless we set our minds, our wills, and our affections on Christ, this equation will compound into total unbelief. So let's look at the first component of this equation. Verses 1 through 10 highlight the disciples' forgetfulness of the Lord's grace. Now, some people in their unbelief struggle with this passage. They, they, they question whether or not this is a separate, uh, a separate feeding, a feeding of the 4,000 that is distinct from the feeding of the 5,000, or if it's just a retelling, a regurgitation, a modification of the first in order to um, push their false belief that Jesus is the Son of God. Unbelievers think that. They think that basically the early church decided they wanted to pad Jesus' stats. And so they took this instant uh, that was really just uh, benevolence shown in the crowd. You know, you had this little boy, and he had, he had five loaves, and he had two fish, and he brought them to Jesus, and then everybody else started pulling their food out. And so that's what ended up being this first miraculous feeding. It wasn't really a miracle at all. And then they said, well, then the early church just has compounded that. They, they added one more to make, it, make Jesus look more spectacular. But that's not the case. I mean, what they're doing is they're basically comparing all the similarities between the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. And there are a lot. There are a lot of similarities between the two. I mean, both take place. They're out in these desolate places. There's thousands of people around. They're all hungry. There's no food, right? Somebody finds a little bit, you know, the disciples doubt. Jesus takes the bread, he blesses it, he breaks it, he passes it out, you know, it gets distributed among the crowd, and then after everybody is satisfied, they go around with baskets and they collect all the leftovers and they have so many baskets full, and then Jesus basically dismisses the crowd and then they go their separate ways, right? And it's the same story in both, right? But for all the similarities that we see in these two accounts, there are just as many distinctions. The feeding in our account takes place at a different time, at a different location, and has different participants. Right, this, take, this took place months after the first feeding. It takes place in the region of the Decapolis, a, a Gentile region, across the Sea of Galilee from where the first one had taken place. And the, 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 it's comprised, the crowd is comprised of Gentiles, not Jews, like it had been the first time. This Gentile crowd, numbering 4,000, 
had been with Jesus for three days with nothing to eat, where in the first account it was 5,000 men, not including women and children, and they had only been with Jesus for one day. This miracle occurs with a different number of loaves and fish to begin with. In this one, we see seven uh, and a few small fish as opposed to the five loaves and two fish. And they collect only seven baskets full the second time instead of the twelve like they did the first. And when they dismissed the crowd, when they got in the boat and they headed out on the sea, in this case, they're heading in exactly the opposite direction as they did the last time. The last time they were over on the west bank and they headed northeast, and then this time they're on the east bank, and they head west, right? So they're heading in completely opposite directions. But the biggest supporting factor for why there are two feedings as opposed to one uh, is found in verses 19 and 20, because Jesus said so, right? It says, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And Matthew affirms this account, that there are two separate feedings. And we have no reason to doubt. We have no reason to question, no reason to disbelieve. This one took place after the first, while Jesus was in this Gentile region of the Decapolis. Now, the second feeding has a slightly, a very slightly different purpose than the first. The speeding of the 4,000 has a little bit of a distinction. And if you look for it in verses 1 through 10, if you look carefully, you can find it. You will notice that it does reveal that Jesus shows the same compassion for the crowd in both circumstances. His compassion towards the 4,000 was the same as his compassion towards the 5,000 in chapter 6. In both cases, we see that Jesus has all authority and power as the creator to take a few, take a little, and to make much with it, to feed thousands with just a few loaves and a few small fish. In both cases, Jesus challenges the unbelief of his disciples, and he ultimately proves that true satisfaction is found only in him. But the one major distinction is the crowd. The crowd is the only difference. This multitude is comprised of what the Jews considered to be unclean, unworthy Gentiles. The Jews didn't think that the Gentiles had any right to come to God. They were not God's chosen people. Therefore, they're on the outside. And they can pretend to worship God in some ways, but let's face it, it's not the same. They're not as good. They're inferior Gentiles, by the way, who were far more eager to be with Jesus than even the Jewish crowd because they had come from far away and had been with him for three days without anything to eat. Y'all ever been on a three-day fast? I tried it once. I didn't make it. <laughs> That's a long time to be devoted to it. Now, this is important. Because what we see is that Jesus' purposes behind both feedings in every way was the same regardless of, whether, of who was in the crowd. It didn't matter. His compassion was impartial. His power and authority was revealed without bias, without any prejudice at all. Jesus includes the Gentiles. He brings them in. He makes no distinction to them. He offers the same truth, the same promise, the same hope, the same affection. The same satisfaction. 
And these Gentiles are all the more eager to receive it. Now, when I was preparing, I was tempted just to make this its own sermon. This is a big deal. It comes up repeatedly throughout Mark. It's happened before. It'll happen again. And and, and I want to highlight the fact. I I don't want you to miss the fact that Jesus shows impartiality. Jesus has a missionary mindset. He's going out. He's including everyone. People that are not like him. People that are considered outcasts. People that would make you feel uncomfortable. And he loves them. And he includes them. And he brings them in. He wants them to understand who he is, why he came, and what it means to follow him. And therefore, we are to do the same thing. That's a big issue. We've seen it before. We'll see it again. But as I was preparing, preparing, there's a bigger theme that runs across Mark. A theme that ultimately we have to deal with first before we can get to this. It's the theme of the unbelief of the disciples. It will continue to run through this gospel. We've seen it already. They continually misunderstand who Jesus is and why he came. They constantly want to please the crowd and to gain glory from man. They, they don't get his parables. I have to ask him all the time. And he's like, do you still not get it? Okay, let me tell you. When he calms the storm, they question who he is. Their hearts were hardened after Jesus fed the 5,000 the first time, and they couldn't, they couldn't grasp it. Their hearts were cold. They were hard. When Jesus walks on water, they're fearful all the time. They're constantly bickering with one another as to who's the greatest, and they're persistently blinded by their own expectations of Jesus, what they want Him to be for them. I had to preach verses 1 through 21 because this thread of unbelief runs throughout. And Jesus is really going to tug at it in verses 14 through 21. He warns them of the danger of forgetting the significance of both of these feedings. They are blind to the evidence of God's grace that is right in front of them. I mean, the disciples should have been able to put two and two together. They should have remembered what happened before, and and believe that he could do it again. They should have remembered the last time Jesus fed the multitude. I mean, just like last time, they were in a desolate place, they're surrounded by thousands, and there's nothing to eat. But they forgot his grace. Just like last time, Jesus turns to them and he says, I have compassion on the crowd. I want to give them something to eat. But they forgot his grace. The disciples responded in verse 4, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Well, at least they remembered that money is not the issue, right? They've got that much, but they still question, how could this happen? They forgot His grace. They forgot Jesus asking them for bread, His direction to sit the crowd down, His giving thanks and breaking the bread. They forgot about all these things. They forgot how He he led them to distribute the food and how they had gathered up leftovers in baskets. They forgot His grace. They forgot Jesus' words that He would open a way for the Gentiles. They forgot how He had healed and had given faith to the Gentiles, just as he had the Jews. They forgot his grace. And in verse 10, when they dismissed the crowd and got into the boat, heading towards the district of of Dalmanutha, they were going directly 
towards the area where the first feeding took place. You think Jesus said, hey, I'm heading over there towards the city of, of Magdala. And they're like, oh, yeah, we've been there once before. What happened last time? Jesus fed 5,000. Hey, Jesus fed 4,000. But did they remember? No, they forgot his grace. They couldn't remember that Jesus had done it before and so he could do it again. They couldn't figure out that Jesus miraculously fed 5,000 Jews, 5,000 plus Jews. I mean, who knows how many it was, because that's not including the, the women and children. Could be 10,000, could be 15, 20. I mean, I don't know. And here he feeds 4,000. We ought to put this together. Huh. Jesus feeds Jews and Gentiles. Jesus shows compassion to Jews and Gentiles. There's no distinction between Jew and Gentile, but they don't get it. They forget His grace. They simply forgot the evidence of His grace that was all around them. It was, it's dripping off the page. I mean, we look at this and we're like, duh, come on guys. But they didn't see it. They're blinded by their immediate circumstances and they forgot His faithfulness in the past. Maybe they were blinded by their hunger. You know, they've got some iron deficiency or some blood glucose problems, you know, and they're getting all shaky and about ready to swallow their tongue. I don't know. But, but they forgot His grace. Or maybe they were, they were unable to see His grace because they were blinded by their own desires or expectations of the Messiah. Jesus simply wasn't fitting into their box. He wasn't what they wanted Him to be. And they kept struggling with it over and over and over again. Or maybe, maybe they were blinded by their own bias. They didn't like the Jew, or they didn't like the Gentiles. They thought they were better than the Gentiles. They thought they were the chosen, and the Gentiles were unworthy. They thought they were clean. They thought the Gentiles were unclean. They were uncomfortable that Jesus was treating these people that were different from me in the same way He treats people like me. And He's calling me to do the same thing. So Jesus asked them the question in verse 18. Do you not remember? But before we dog too much on the disciples, we have to recognize, you have to affirm that we're prone to forget just like them. We fail to remember all the time. We do exactly the same thing. You know, we're, we're here one moment. You know, we're, we're praising God. We're, we're extolling His graces. We're thanking Him for all that He has done. And the very minute that our circumstances change and things get hard or difficult or challenging, we're like, why, God, why? Where are you? Are you for me? Are you on my side? Why are you letting this happen to me? I mean, we've all done it, right? Don't tell me you haven't done it. All right, we're going to, have to sit down and have a conversation if you think we haven't. It's crazy. We do it all the time because we, Jesus doesn't meet our desires. He doesn't meet our expectations. He's not fitting into my plan for my life. He's not revealing himself for what I want him to be. And I've got a problem with that. And so when we do that, we let our, our bias, we let our, our preferences, we let our desires and expectations just kind of blind us to the evidence of God's grace that is all around us. And it is, because you can't deny it. I mean, never mind the fact that it's only by Him that you live and breathe and have your being. 
and that everything that you have is a gift from Him. Alright? Forget the fact that, that Jesus, or that God sent His beloved Son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty for our sin. For our sin of complaining and whining and murmuring and grieving at the fact that He's not bowing down to my wishes. Jesus died for the very sin that they were committing at that moment. Never mind the fact that Jesus rose from the grave so that we can be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, by, guarded by God's power through faith for salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last day. It is guaranteed you can't take it away, but that's not enough. And forget that nothing, absolutely nothing, can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not death, not life, not angels, not rulers, not things present, not things to come, nor height, nor depth. Absolutely nothing, absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. But in that moment, in that circumstance, we forget all about it, don't we? We're blind to the Lord's grace that is all around us. We're just like the disciples. We want to fit Jesus into our box. We want Him to accommodate us. We want Him to bow down to my will, to my wishes. I want Him to save me, but not be my Lord. And so we simply forget, or we are unable to see His grace that is everywhere in our lives. The fact that you're breathing right now ought to be confirmation enough that God is giving you time to know Him, to repent, and to see His grace. That in itself is enough. And when we do that, we let our flesh rule over us. How many times when, when things aren't going our way, when, when things are challenging or difficult, or we feel like we're being attacked or we're challenged, and, and, and we get on the defensive, that we, we think that we're now justified to act according to our feelings rather than the truth. We think that it's somehow okay for me to be frustrated, to be angry, or to be disappointed by my situation, to grieve and to long. It's one thing to grieve while trusting, but we don't do that. We become angry because we don't like God's providence. We don't like what He's laid out for us. We're not relying upon the truth. Or we just associate ourselves with those that make us feel most comfortable. Yeah? I'm not going to... I hate to pick on you guys, but all you guys in that row right there have polo shirts on. <laughs> you know? And I just noticed that. You know, like, we, we, we get around people that we dress just like. You know, we're, we're similar age, similar life circumstances. You know, y'all single, right? Not married? No, nobody's married, okay? So, you know, there we are. We've got all these things in common, right? And that becomes a comfort to us. And we think that, okay, I can live out the gospel really easy in this context because these people are just like me. Well, are you liking, do you love that person that's sitting next to you or do you love what you see in your, of yourself in that person sitting next to you? That's a big difference, right? Love is manifest when you're loving people that are completely different from you. Guys with tats and nose rings, the old ladies with blue hair, you know, that kind of stuff. That's love, you know. People that don't speak the same language, people that are dirt poor and smelly, you know, like all that stuff is evidence of love. The love that we should have for one another. 
And so if we are aware, if we're living in the grace of God, that overflows into a love for others. It doesn't matter who they are. We can show it impartially. It doesn't matter how 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 uh, unintelligent they are or how intelligent they are. It doesn't matter how much money they make. It doesn't matter how much education they have or what kind of car they drive or what clothes they wear. None of that matters. I can be around them and love them because my love comes from the Lord. It doesn't come from them or what I see of myself in them. So the first step of unbelief is complete when we forget or are unable to see the Lord's grace that is all around us. The disciples forgot, and so do we. Thus, the first component of this mathematics of unbelief has now fallen into place. Second, we add to it the influence of the hard-hearted. Let's pick back up in verse 10. And immediately he got into the boat and with his disciples and went across to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came as soon as he got there, and, and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit, and he said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, and he got into the boat again, and he went to the other side. So Jesus and his disciples, they load up, they head back across the Sea of Galilee into the Jewish territory of Dalmanutha, which is where Magdala is, more than likely the location of that first feeding of the 5,000. As soon as they get out there, they're met with these religious leaders who immediately they go to arguing with Jesus. They want to test him. They want to find out what he's all about. Now, they're asking, they're, well, rather, they're demanding a sign from heaven. All right, Jesus... People are saying you're the son of David. They're saying you're the Christ, the Messiah. They say that you're the son of God. Well, prove it to me. I want to see a sign from heaven. Now, they're asking for more than a simple miracle here. They're, they're basically they're looking back at Deuteronomy and, and how you distinguish a true prophet of God from a false prophet of God. But even that idea has been sort of contorted and compounded over time to where it's not enough for the for a, a prophet just to say something and then you see it actually come to pass and that's what proves the prophet to be true. Now, they are wanting an apocalyptic phenomenon from heaven to show, that to give them comfort, to show that God is for them and that He is going to destroy or judge or vanquish their enemies, the people that threaten them. That's what they're demanding. Okay, They are looking for Sodom and Gomorrah to happen. That's what they want to see, all right? They want to see God rain fire down from heaven onto the Gentiles, the people that Jesus just came from. They want to see him judge or destroy the very people that he had just finished blessing. They want him to prove that he is on their side, and they want him to do it in a way that is pleasing to them. Think about that. They want him to prove that he is on their side. Okay, Jesus, are you for us? Come over here, and if you're going to prove that, destroy our enemies. Do it in this way, and then I'll know. Does that sound familiar to any one of you? You haven't done that, have you? Yeah? God, are you on my side? Could you just prove it by giving me a sign? Could you just show me that you're for me? 
The reality is we've all done that. We've all, at one time or another, asked God to prove to us that He is God. To prove that He is real. To prove that He is for me. And to do it in the way that I want Him to do it. It's not good enough in the way that He wants to do it. He's got to do it my way. He must accommodate me. He must prove Himself to me. He must bow down to me. He must give me what I want. We all do that. We've all done that. But what more proof do you need that Jesus has divine authority? I mean, God has already sent His forerunner, John, to prepare the way of the Lord. At Jesus' baptism, God thunders down from heaven, Behold, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We've already seen Jesus teach with all the authority of God. We've seen Jesus heal people and cast out demons and forgive sin and stand in authority over the law. We've seen Jesus walk on water, calm storms, feed thousands of people miraculously, and even cause a little girl to rise from the dead. I mean, what else do we need? What else does it take? He's already filled dozens and dozens and dozens of Old Testament promises and prophecies. What more do you want? What else is it going to take? What does he have to prove? We have to remember that these Pharisees, these religious leaders, have already made an official edict. They've already decided back in chapter 3 that what Jesus does, his mighty works, are actually the work of Satan, of Beelzebub. They've decided that he is from hell and not from heaven. So it's a little bit ironic if you consider the man to be from hell that you would ask for him to prove himself by a sign from heaven. But they do. And it's not going to matter. In John chapter 11... Jesus comes and he raises his friend Lazarus from the grave. Lazarus has been dead four days. And he's presented to the religious leaders. There's no question, there's no doubt that Lazarus has been dead and is now alive. And do you think that at that point they're like, oh wow, Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. We need to believe in Him. But no, instead what they do is they plot to kill Jesus and Lazarus to cover it up. They have made up their mind about Jesus. A sign from heaven won't change that. They are hard-hearted and unbelieving. They're asking Jesus in order to test him, but it doesn't matter because they won't believe. They have already committed that unforgivable sin in seeing the work of the Holy Spirit, knowing that it's the work of the Holy Spirit, and then maliciously saying, attributing it to Satan. That's the unforgivable sin that they have done. And so it doesn't matter. Nothing will convince them at this point of Jesus' divinity. Absolutely nothing. Not even if he rained fire down from heaven to judge God's enemies, which they wouldn't believe, which, by the way, they would be the ones destroyed, but that's kind of beside the point. There is nothing that will convince them that Jesus is the Son of God. And that's why he responds the way he does. Jesus replies to their demand by sighing deep in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And then he got, he left him, he got in the boat, and he headed across the, the sea again. He groans in his spirit at their hardness of heart. And then he makes a prophetic announcement. He says, Truly, I say to you, There will be no sign that is given. Alright? 
What you're demanding, what you're wanting, you will not see it. You will not see this sign from heaven. There will be no hell's bells, okay? Your enemies will not be destroyed. You falsely assume that, that you are on God's side, that you are God's chosen people. You presume that you are clean by all your religious efforts, but the reality is you are blind and you are leading people into the pit of hell itself. And if rain, rain fire would come down, it would destroy you. You are the evil generation and no sign will be given to you. No sign but one. So he gets in the boat and he leaves. But Matthew and Luke, they add uh, an additional pronouncement. Jesus said to them, no sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah. Jonah, a prophet of God, who spent three days in the belly of a whale, in death, to rise and go and preach the way of repentance and faith to the Gentiles. See a connection? Are you putting two and two together? The only sign of God's wrath that would be given is the cross of Jesus Christ. He died to bear God's wrath against sin and He rose three days later so that both Jew and Gentile can now be clean before God through repentance and faith. The only sign we need, the only sign that we should want, the only sign that we could hope for is the propitiation, the wrath-satisfying sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. You don't get better than that. And you don't need more. Yes, so often we look to God for some sign, some, some external indication that God is for us, you know, that, that, that God is on my side. And you know, God is generous. God is gracious. He occasionally throws us a bone from now, from, from time to time. But, but ultimately, are, are we trusting in God or are we trusting in that sign, that external, irrefutable, unequivocal demonstration that God is for me? You know, when we do that, we actually turn our relationship with God on its head. The issue is not, God, are you on my side? God, are you for me? The issue is, am I on his side? Am I for him? That's the issue. We foolishly think that if God gives us a sign that we'll have more faith, that we'll trust Him more, that we'll be more on His side than we were before. But faith that depends on outward proof is not faith. It is only veiled doubt. It is hidden unbelief. When we look to God for some external, irrefutable, visible proof to remove any doubt from our decision of faith, we eliminate the need for faith altogether. Do you see that? Did you ever think about that? Right? If God just proves Himself, it doesn't take any faith. But if we say, you know what? I'm on your side, God. I'm going to walk in this. That's our faith. That's how faith is revealed. Not by, by God giving us those wet fleeces all the time or those burning bushes, right? I mean, Gideon is not the model of faith that you want to believe. Alright? He sets himself up as God. 
Our faith ends up being a continuation or sustaining of these external proofs, but it's not ultimately in God. We're looking for repeated experiences at that point. Oh, if I could just have that emotional experience, or if I could just see that thing, or if I could just speak in tongues, or if I could just do whatever this is, or if I could see a miracle, if I could see a wonder, I don't know, then I'll have more faith. But no, because you're trusting in the sign. You're not ultimately trusting in God. And when we look to those, we prove that we to prove that what we believe, we, we actually we have no faith at all. Faith says, God, regardless of whether or not you show me a sign, you have revealed yourself to be true in your word. And I trust you. And I'm going to follow you. Things are hard right now. I don't understand what's going on. I am scared. I don't know what's coming next. There are a lot of decisions before me, but I am going to walk by faith. I am going to to discern your revealed word because you are my rock. You are my hope. And I will walk in your ways regardless of whether or not you ever give me a burning bush or a wet fleece. That is faith. Not looking to the sky for signs that, that remove the need from faith altogether. You know, I dealt with this on a personal level last week. Last week we found out that uh, as of January, unless things change, that we're not able to meet here at the Hawthorne anymore. And uh, it doesn't really seem like a big deal, except that, you know, if you know the history of Redeemer, when we got up to soft launch time and things were just falling apart in a lot of ways. And there was a lot of uncertainty. There were a lot of questions. We didn't really know what was going on. And we, we knew that we needed a place to meet. And we had been praying and praying and praying and praying and praying that God would provide. I'd drawn up this list like six months earlier of everything that we could possibly want in a meeting space. You know, that it would be centrally located, really close to campus, easy to find, kind of on a ma- some major intersection, major road, that, that it have plenty of parking, that it have some sort of foyer, you know, for us to greet and talk to people, that, that they would have children's ministry space, you know, that, and it would be cheap. And, and it'd be great if they threw in the chairs. And you know what? Like, it got down to the wire, but God provided that. He provided that perfectly in the Hawthorne. And so we were grateful. This is now evidence that God is for us, that God is supporting our work, that God is behind our ministry. Look, if we ever question, if we ever become uncertain about what God is doing in the life of Redeemer Church, we've got the Hawthorne. It's evidence, right? And so this becomes our, our Ebenezer stone that we begin to raise up. And each time we question, each time we doubt, we look back and we, we remember. And it's, it's a good thing to remember God's faithfulness in the past. But what happens when God takes away the stone? And I found myself being rocked by it. It's like, <laughs> we're, we're back here again? We're doing this again, God? Really? What about, what about this? And we, we saw that we were trusting that we were very comfortable in the sign, but not in God's provision. I questioned whether or not God would provide again in the same way that he did before. God, I I don't think that you could feed 4,000 in the same way that you fed 5,000 plus. See? And so I I recognized that. I had to repent. I had to get on my knees and say, God, you know, you have proven yourself in so many ways to be faithful to us. 
And though things have not gone the way that I would have envisioned them, the way that I would have dreamed, the way that I would have been expected, things are good. You've been faithful. We're setting a good foundation. And I'm grateful for that. But we do that all the time when it comes to these signs. We trust in them rather than just looking them back at them and saying, you know what, God is faithful. He'll be faithful again. And when we do that, we need to repent. Friends, we don't need a sign from heaven for that. We don't. We've got all that we need in His Word. The sign from heaven that we have is the cross and empty tomb of Jesus Christ. That's how we know that He is for me. Even if everything else should go away. The hard-hearted and unbelieving want external proofs from God. Believers know that they already have it in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We must simply remember the grace of God and not be led astray by the influence of the unbelieving. If we do, it will lead third to the inability to perceive. Let's pick back up in verse 14. Now they had gotten back in the boat, they left the hard-hearted Pharisees behind, and they had headed across to the other side. Now they, the disciples, had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they have no bread. Now maybe they've already polished off that, those seven basketfuls, you know, back from, back from verse 8. You know, but, but regardless, they forgot to bring bread with them. They only had one loaf with them. And before they even began to murmur, about the bread, Jesus, knowing their heart, warns them to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, if you don't know what leaven is, leaven is, it's yeast, really it's bacteria that you put in dough for bread, and it works its way throughout the bread so that when you bake it, the bread rises, right? But basically, you think about this, you're putting bacteria into some, you know, a living organism into your dough. You're infecting your dough, right? That's what you're doing when you're putting leaven in your dough. And so what Jesus is saying, watch out for the infection, watch out for the influence of the Pharisees and of Herod. Now, this is a little surprising because if you know your history, you know that Pharisees and Herod don't go together. They're about as polar opposites as you can be. There's only two things that they have in common. One, they're both Jews, right? And two, they don't believe in Jesus. That's it. They're hard-hearted towards who he is. And so Jesus is warning them, watch out that you don't fall into the same unbelief that the Pharisees and Herod have about me. That's the, the leaven that he's warning, <clears throat> warning them against. Now, Herod thought that Jesus was the reincarnation of John the Baptist, and the Pharisees, we've already seen, think that Jesus is the incarnation of Satan, Right? And so neither of them bowed well. So Jesus warns them against this influence, against this infection of unbelief that they had. But his words don't sink in. It says that, that they began discussing how they had no bread. No, that's funny, because in verse 14 it said they had one loaf. Some commentators might think that, oh, that one loaf is Jesus. It's a metaphor. I don't think so, because Mark never refers to Jesus as bread in this. I mean, you're, you're reading that in from John. And that's fine. But I think they really had a loaf of bread. I mean, they're talking about bread. So 
Here they are, they've got this one loaf, but they ignore the fact, and they're talking about how they don't have any bread. Isn't it amazing how when we're anxious or worried about something, we just kind of like, we make, we exacerbate the situation. It's somehow more dire or more dramatic than it really is. We make it a lot worse. We've got one loaf, but no, I don't have any bread. What are we going to do? You know, I mean, they've got one loaf and they're standing in the boat with a guy that has just fed 5,000 plus with five loaves and has just fed 4,000 with seven loaves. You'd think that he could handle 13 with one, right? I mean, statistically, odds are pretty good. <laughs> and that's what Jesus thinks. Aware of their hearts, he says to them in verse 17, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand... Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And he said to them, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? Why are you discussing bread? Are you hard-hearted like the Pharisees? Are you dull like Herod? Do you still not perceive? Do you still not understand? Do you still not comprehend? Do you still not know who I am? Do you still not see? Do you still not hear? Do you not remember? You know, in asking these questions, Jesus is warning them that they are in danger of falling into this equation of unbelief. They're born unbelieving. They forget what he has done. They are influenced by the hard-hearted Pharisees, and they are at risk of falling into further unbelief. They are still blind and still deaf as to who he is. They still do not get it. They are as hard-hearted as they were back in chapter 6, verse 52 after the first miraculous feeding, after Jesus had just walked on water in front of them. They're just as hard-hearted. They still don't get it. They do not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. And apparently they still are. And so Jesus applies three Old Testament passages that He has applied already applied to the unbelieving Jews, and already used to describe why it is He preaches in parables, And he applies them now to the twelve, warning them that they are close to doing the very same thing. In Isaiah 6, 9 and 10, in Jeremiah 5, 21, and Ezekiel 12, 2, God condemns the Israelites for being a rebellious house who has eyes to see but see not, and have ears to hear but hear not. If the disciples continue to forget His grace and are persuaded by the hard-hearted, they two will end up being just like this rebellious house of Israelites under the wrath of God. When he asked them about the loaves and the baskets, they can answer the question. They understand. 5,000? Yeah, we had 12 baskets left over. What about the 4,000? Seven, right? Yeah, yeah, seven. Seven. They could answer the questions, but they still could not see and perceive the true purpose behind it. They couldn't see their need for faith in the reality of who Jesus is. And their nearness to Him was in danger of simply inoculating them towards a saving understanding of Jesus. 
They were at risk of being around and seeing his actions, of hearing his words over and over and over again to the point where they just become dull to it. They're resistant of it. Their body has developed a tolerance to it. And so they end up perpetuating and being in total unbelief. That's what happens to Jonah or or Jonah, Judas. Sorry, Judas. It's what happens to Judas. It's not enough to be able to answer the questions. You must see and believe. You must perceive. You must understand. Nearness to the truth means absolutely nothing if you do not walk in it. And we need to get this. All right? It is not enough to be near the truth if it does not inform your lives. You are of no advantage here if you are in unbelief, whether you hear the gospel or not, or whether you sing songs about Jesus or not, or whether you're involved in this ministry or that, or you're doing this Bible study or not. If you are blind to it, if you can't see, it means nothing. You can have all the right doctrine in the world and still be dead in your sin. You study church history, you learn a lot about that. Adolf Harnack, a very, very influential, unbelieving theologian, he had, the, he had the New Testament in Greek memorized. He could spout off answers like that. He didn't believe in Jesus. It's very possible to deceive ourselves into thinking that just because I'm near, I'm okay. You know, we can see the hand of God at work. We can even profess, hey, that's the work of God, and not be changed by it, to not be transformed, for, for, to not be ours, to not happen in our lives and just be out there. We see that with the crowd that gave glory to the God of Israel, still unbelieving. And if we are not careful to understand and apply, we can hear the gospel over and over and over and over and over and over again until we become so inoculated, so dull to it, that we are resistant to its power. I have to say conversely that if we are to understand and perceive, if we are to know the truth with our whole being, then there is no such thing as blind faith. There's no such thing as this this blind leap of faith that we can just kind of claim ignorance and be okay. We have to be informed. We have to understand. We have to perceive. We need a proper understanding to be applied to our hearts so that it changes our lives if we are to have saving faith in Christ. We cannot simply be around the gospel. We must love the gospel, study the gospel, live the gospel, be transformed by the gospel. We must love it. We must trust it. We must be committed in action to the gospel. Otherwise, we will forget God's grace and let ourselves be seduced by the hard-hearted and unbelieving and find that we are unable at the end of the day to perceive truth, the beauty, and the wonder of Jesus Christ. He will just be a thing to us that we do. We will find ourselves standing on the outside because of our unbelief. Open your eyes to this. Most of you, if not all of you, have made a profession of faith. You have confessed that Jesus is Lord. 
But if we're all honest, there's times where we wonder if we actually believe that. There's even more times where we think we ought to wonder. Guys, it's not enough to be here. It's not enough to sing songs. It's not enough to really be involved with a lot of Christian activities and be a lot around a lot of Christian people. That is not going to save you. That's a religion of works. It cannot get you there. As you open your eyes to the wonder, to the beauty, to the awesomeness of God, and in light of that, now begin to turn your eyes upon yourself and view yourself in light of Him. You cannot make light of your sin. You cannot simply just say, oh, hey guys, you know, I committed a sin again, sorry, and then continue to run back, loving it over and over and over again. There's no place for unforgiveness in, in your life. Hey, if we're really changed, which the gospel is the transforming power, then, then it has its effect. And if there's not that change, guys, open your eyes and examine. Recognize your need of Christ. That you have tried to live your life over and over and over again without God. You've lived in rebellion against Him. You've lived as His enemy. You have willfully tried to live your life as if this is my world and I am God. Now we would not say that outright, but that's the way we live. And the proof is in the pudding. Guys, you have to see and recognize your need of Christ. You must turn away from your sin and follow after Him. Not asking that question over and over again. God, are you on my side? God, are you for me? And start saying, God, I am on yours. I want to follow you. I don't care if I don't have a burning bush. I don't care if I don't have answers right now. I know that you're true and I want to follow it. I believe it with all my heart. And that's what I find my identity in. Not any other organization, not in any other relationship, not in any other thing, not in what I wear. doesn't matter. I love Christ. I want to follow Christ. That's what it means. And that's the hope that is offered that he's revealing over and over again. If you would just see, he's painting the picture. Guys, believe it. Satisfaction comes only through him. I pray that we would stop doubting. That we would not close our eyes to the evidence of God's grace that is all around us. That we would not buy into the message of the unbelieving and the hard-hearted and just continuing to feed ourselves, feed our souls off of that stuff over and over and over again, lest we fail to perceive. Let's pray together. Father, we, we confess that we are blind. We confess that so often we have spurned or ignored or made light of your grace. We confess that we have not seen you rightly, that we have exalted ourselves, that we have shown partiality, indifference, hatred, enmity towards people who are made in your image. We confess that we love our sin. We've got to pray for our souls. 
that we wouldn't just play disciple. That we wouldn't just be near to the truth and not be transformed by it. God, open our eyes to see the truth, beauty, and wonder of Christ. God, open our hearts to receive it. Help us to love Him more than we love ourselves, more than we love the things of this world. God, let us not forget Your grace. We thank You that You are faithful when we are not. And that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Your love is seen in that. Lord, it's in your powerful name that we pray. Amen.